Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Water Mission's goal is to bring safe water sanitation solutions to developing countries and in response to disasters and also bring the message of God's love. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Boy, what a fun week we are having already. If you're back for more, thanks for listening to Angela Rainford's interview earlier in the week. I do hope that you enjoyed it, and I'm glad that you're back for another episode. Today's guest is Mark Baker, Program Director for Disaster Response at Water Mission. Water Mission has been implementing solar projects for water pumping around the world for 20 years and played a key role in helping bring clean drinking water back to the island of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit the island two years ago. Suncast tribe member and friend Bertram Peterson spent time volunteering for Water Mission on the island, and he made the connection to Mark. I'm so grateful for Bertram for doing that. Today, you'll hear the story of how Water Mission has been helping build solar pumping systems to provide critical water infrastructure in times of need around the world. Mark is an inspiring leader, and I really enjoyed his perspective on life and business. I'd also like to encourage you, to visit watermission.org and consider supporting their Hurricane Dorian Relief Fund, which is aimed at providing up to a million dollars in matching funds for hurricane victims in the Bahamas. And in case you missed it on Tuesday, today I'm hosting a webinar with Tuesday's guest, Miss Angela Rainford of Recamnier Ventures, all about her lessons learned from winning and executing on a 50 megawatt solar project in the Jamaica Power Tender, which Just yesterday, they had the inauguration ceremony for Angela has been on a tear. It's been exciting to watch how that business is growing as well. You can find a link to register for that webinar at mysuncast.com. And I do hope that you'll join us. But for now, let's tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right. Welcome to another episode here on Suncast Solar Warriors. Today, we are going to spend some time Looking at the nonprofit and disaster relief world, I've got Mark Baker, the director of disaster response for Water Mission, here to talk to us about their growth and response to not just the hurricanes that destroyed Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, et cetera, but the work that they're doing around the world. Now, Water Mission is a Christian engineering nonprofit from my home state of South Carolina that specializes in assessment, development, and implementation of sustainable and safe water projects. And what's cool about that, and a hat tip to our friend Bertram Peterson, Suncast Tribe member and, and all-around uh, amazing human being, who introduced me to Mark. Bertram was a volunteer for Water Mission down in Puerto Rico in their response to the hurricanes. Water Mission has started building a lot of solar projects around the world, and I think the majority of them support water projects. We're going to explore that some more with Mark. Mark's a 20-year veteran from the United States Air Force. 
as a, get this, crash rescue firefighter. And he's got 17 years of project management experience, which Water Mission is taking full advantage of. Mark, welcome to Suncast. I'm very happy to be here. Looking forward to speaking with you today. You get the chance to travel around the world. Most of us uh, have to travel for you know conferences and whatnot, and you get to travel to such exotic places as Tanzania and Puerto Rico. You weren't always, uh, as I mentioned, in uh, you know building solar power and water pumping stations. Can you tell me a little bit about your first exposure to solar power or clean energy and how you kind of decided this is where you're going to start focusing your career? And, and I recognize that where you're focused right now is more disaster relief. And we'll talk a bit more about Water Mission and its overall mission in a minute. But I'm just curious about how you became aware of solar power and the possibility that it, that it holds for our communities and for sustainability. I remember from science classes way back when I was a kid, like, you know, back in the Stone Age, talking about solar. Solar's been around for a long time. So I knew about it. I, I knew of its existence. But that was about it. You know, we could harness the sun's energy for, for power. The industry's gone through tremendous growth and change since that time. I mean, that was 40 years ago. I remember first learning about it. Coming to Water Mission was really my full immersion into solar and, 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 you know, obviously it's a niche for us because we use it for, for powering water systems, for powering water pumps. However, uh, I've learned a tremendous amount about solar just by being here. Water Mission has done over 1200 solar projects worldwide and they're all water, they're water pumping projects. Our projects, whether they're solar or Another form of energy are always we we build sustainable projects. We build projects that provide water not just for the now but for twenty years to come. Our projects are designed to do that, and solar is a great way for us to achieve that. Especially when you're talking about communities that are in these developing countries that don't have the economic model to sustain it. Solar is a great way to help them achieve their independence, not only for you know for energy but also for for having that safe that safe clean water. You guys responded to the need down in Puerto Rico. Again, I mentioned that that's how we got connected was through Bertram. What did that look like as an organization to be called in to that sort of disaster relief, that scale of need? Was that something that you guys were accustomed to or did you have to start building tools and organizational skill sets around that? The magnitude of the disaster we were definitely equipped for. We had the equipment, we had the manpower, we had everything we needed to handle that size disaster. We handled uh, earthquakes in Nepal, earthquakes in Haiti, uh, tsunamis in different places. Uh, you know, we've handled small scale to large scale. I will say that by far to date, Puerto Rico has exceeded in terms of operational funding, any other disaster that I know that we have responded to, you know, financially, the money that came in to do that disaster. And we were equipped with everything we needed. And every disaster is different. But interestingly enough, when we went into Puerto Rico, we went in with the mindset of how we normally do disaster response. Uh, we have systems and we have equipment specifically designed, but Puerto Rico was an anomaly. And that anomaly is exactly what allowed us to expand our solar projects there. If we didn't do solar, our work there would have been limited. If we had no experience with solar or it wasn't our forte, we would have been able to help very little in Puerto Rico. Having solar as a tool, as an option, allowed us, our work is continuing. We're still there. Two years later, we're still there. Yeah, I love it. And I'm going to spend some time 
talking about the work that you did in Puerto Rico and, and generally speaking, how you guys are integrating solar, I'm really interested in, first and foremost, how you got into this world of nonprofit, specifically Water Mission, how you found yourself in that place in your career. And I'd also love to pull on the thread a little bit about how the skill set and experiences and tool sets, perhaps, from your previous roles, especially in the Air Force, have helped you in your current role. I'll tell you a little bit about my, my previous career before I came to Water Mission. I worked with a, a big home building operation uh, with Syntex Homes and then Pulte Homes. Great organization. Worked with them for 17 years. And I went into that industry after college. I knew nothing about building a house. I knew nothing. I knew how to use tools and I was trainable. I went into the organization, uh, an entry-level position. I was trained very well, learned the business very quickly and moved up in the business. I moved up very quickly. It was a time when home building was was on a, you know, an upward climb very rapidly. And in home building, you know, project management in that sense, you've got a lot of pieces and parts to manage and it's true true project management when you're building probably at the peak of my experience as a field manager, I had 24 to 30 houses under construction at one time. So from that, the discipline of managing a project was learned and honed through through those experiences. I enjoyed the field. I learned a lot while I was there. I honed my tradecraft, so to speak, in terms of managing people, managing processes and projects. And Again, a successful career there. I moved up through the ranks of builder, field manager into a role as an estimating analyst, into a role as an area manager responsible for construction and half the city of Charleston for that company. And that was a goal. That was a goal that I had uh, when I set out with the company. I always wanted to grow. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to contribute more. And, and I got there. But honestly, when I got there, not because it wasn't a good company, it was it was a very good company, but the industry had changed a lot overall. The home building industry had changed and it's a very profit driven world. And, you know, there's some other factors that were involved there, but I felt like, honestly, I felt like God said, hey, here you are. This is where you wanted to go. Take a look around. And I did. I looked around the landscape and I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I had everything that went with the job. You know, I had, I had financial success. I had position. I had leadership but I wasn't happy. It's interesting as I'm hearing you, the parallels for so many people I know in the solar industry who have transitioned into clean energy, solar, wind, et cetera, where they got great training, but just weren't happy uh, giving all of their time and effort to something that didn't feel like it had a mission. That's exactly it, Nico. You know, I felt like there was more. I felt like there was more reward out there. And, and I'm not talking about financial because you can, you can chase the dollar your whole life that's not going to necessarily bring you happiness. I will tell you that a good friend of mine uh, worked at Water Mission. He was a program manager for Latin America and the Caribbean. And I sat down with him and I talked about what he did. I'd come to a point in my career. I was like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I need something else. But I wanted to help people. I've always wanted to help people. That's always been in my DNA. I enjoy helping. I enjoy giving. I sat down with him. He's an engineer. Very, very smart man. Similar, he gave up a pretty high-paying job. He came to Water Mission as a program manager. I sat down, talked with him about it on a Sunday, came out to visit the organization on Tuesday, put my resume in Tuesday night. Within a couple of weeks, I had an interview, and I was brought on initially as a project manager for him for Latin America, and I haven't looked back. Can you give us a quick overview of the macro problem of Water Mission and how and why it came to be? 
So our founders, uh, or George and Molly Green, George Green III and his wife, Molly, they owned a very successful uh, environmental engineering business in Charleston called Gel. Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras in, in 98, and through some contacts, they were asked to see if they could help solve a problem of some safe water, some filtration systems and treatment systems for water. There was a big need down there. So he got his guys together, his team, and and they very quickly uh, designed and built some systems. When I say small scale, they were small footprint systems to be able to process, uh, to, to filter and, and treat water. They shipped six of those systems down to Honduras. When they got down, they went down with the systems, took a team down. And when they got down there, they were appalled. They just couldn't believe what they saw, the, the, the water that the people were having to drink. And one of the first systems, I don't know if it was the first, but one of the first systems that they installed and hooked up, they, they were sourcing this water out of a river that was called, the Hondurans called it the River of Death. The water was toxic. It was bad. They hooked this system up. They got the water flowing. And the locals wouldn't drink the water until Molly. Molly took a drink of the water. And then they saw that it was safe. That right there was when Water Mission was born. They came back home after, after that response. I think from what I understand, they had a nonprofit arm of their, of, of their regular business for a while. And then they decided if they wanted to make a dent, and, and I'll explain this in a little bit, if they wanted to make a dent in the global water crisis, they were going to have to go all in. They sold their business and they went all in on Water Mission and they started the organization. And here we are 20 years later. Water Mission's goal is to bring safe water sanitation solutions to developing countries and in response to disasters and also bring the message of God's love. A part of what we do, our faith is, is, is why we do what we do. And our servant heart is why we do what we do. And uh, we bring that to every aspect of what we do. We, our goal is to be a best in class developer and implementer of these projects. In terms of the water crisis, and most people probably don't know this, but globally, 2.1 billion people lack access to safe water. That's about a third of the world's population, I believe. In addition to that, you can, you can almost double that number. I think it's somewhere between 3.6 and 3.8 billion people lack access to adequate sanitation. We attack on both of those fronts, the safe water and also uh, healthy latrines sanitation-wise. Given that you not only have this deep experience building homes, which is extremely useful as a project management tool, but you also you had a career in the Air Force. Were there any mental models or management tools that you feel like have really helped you enter into this world of uh, nonprofit disaster relief? Being in the Air Force, you know, very structured military across the board, very structured environment, very used to getting things done in some dire circumstances, meaning there's a job to do. You got to get it done. Here's the tools, make it happen. You know, getting into this type of nonprofit where, you know, you safe water, I mean, safe water is a life or death issue. When I was a firefighter, it's a life or death issue. You got to get in there. You got to get your job done. Our people's uh, lives are at risk. And I feel that's kind of a parallel, you know, on a different level, so to speak, but it's a parallel. It's, it's a, also with the fire department, I would say that that rush of being called to serve to be, I mean, you get that in the military anyway, but in the fire department, it's even more so. I mean, you're there, there's that need, there's that call to serve, to jump in and make things happen, to make a difference. And that part really prepared me for this role in, in an NGO. But if you also look at your job is to help people, to help people, to save them, to make their lives better in both of these roles. And so much of what I learned there are things that I apply here in my job every day to a sense of urgency, a sense of making things happen, a sense of not taking no for an answer, you know, getting in and, and finding a way to get it done. You actually just hit on something that I feel as an industry we tout, but at an individual level, 
is not tapped into nearly deeply enough, and that is a sense of urgency. And this is something that's been true in my life. I can remember a couple of times in particular in my career where, where I was reminded by folks that I work with that not only from an economic and profitability perspective as a company, but the mission that we're on, we need a sense of urgency. Nothing highlights that more than a disaster does. And that is exactly where you guys tend to step in. Uh, alluded to the fact that you guys had, uh, had been doing some, uh, well, a, a great deal of work in Puerto Rico and that Bertram, our friend, had come to work with you all there. What is the typical size of a solar project for you? Like, what's the, is it small on the small end up to the large end? And how have you begun to think about incorporating additional technology into those systems? We had a very wide range of projects there. The low end, I would say, average is around 14 kilowatts. You know, a water pump, you know, two to five horsepower. The largest array that we put in was 52 kilowatts, 150 panels, 25 horsepower pump. So pretty sizable pump. It's not just about running the pump. Obviously, you need the solar to start that pump up because there's a spike in what you need to get that pump up and running. Probably average was probably... 40, 48 kilowatts of power. How do you come up with the system size to get the most out of the solar power? When we go in and do an assessment and everything that we do an assessment from uh, the pump size, uh, the power demand, the horsepower, the water need, you know, how many households are in the community? How many people per household? How many liters a day does this need to produce? All of that goes into the system because we'll oversize the system to extend that solar day, so to speak to make sure we've got adequate water. We want to do as much as we can on the solar, and then we can augment that with grid power. We can augment that with generator power, but our goal is to make it as much uh, as possible run completely off the solar to provide the water. So, so all those factors go into it. You know, Like I said, the community size, the number of people, uh, the water demand, the, the, the size of the pump, uh, the size of their storage. Yeah, you mentioned that in some cases you're integrating batteries. How do you decide where and how to integrate batteries Maybe touch on whether or not these projects are typically integrated back into the grid. The projects we've done with batteries in Puerto Rico have been single phase power. There's a component to our business that I think some organizations neglect. You can go throw a lot of money at a project because I had so many people in community saying, yeah, we need batteries, 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 batteries. And I'm like, well, you don't necessarily need batteries. You want batteries, but you don't necessarily need batteries. And what I mean by that is this. Batteries add an expensive component to a solar project. If they're not needed, then why add that expense? If we can provide the water for that community off of straight solar with no battery, then we've saved them a great deal of expense by not adding the batteries because they may be able to augment with grid power or generator power more effectively because here's what happens. We give them this gift of this project, okay? Disaster response, we go down there, we give them this gift of this project. This project may be fifty dollars to $100,000. Their responsibility from that point forward is to maintain that project through their collection of tariffs to save that money for the future, uh, you know, to replace panels, to replace the pump, to do all that. The more expense we add to that, the higher their tariff has to be. If you're talking about a community, say, that pays $5 a month in, in tariff, that's fine. If you go to $6, that's probably doable. If you go to $10, maybe. If you go to 15 and the more components that you add to that project that they have to sustain and they have to you know put in there for uh, financial sustainability the harder it becomes when we talk about sustainable we look at solar as sustainable absolutely we look at also financial sustainability because the community 
if they can't bear the cost of it when it comes time to do the replacements and the warranties, then you've just got an expensive system sitting there doing nothing because they can't afford to replace batteries or whatever it is. Hey, I just have a quick invitation for you. I mentioned in the lead up that today we're hosting a webinar with Angela Rainford all about how she has been developing solar in the Caribbean. If you're also interested in developing solar in the Caribbean, you should bookmark and consider attending two events. Precharge, which is an event that I'm hosting with my friend James Ellsmore, an exclusive gathering of Caribbean renewable energy experts. You can learn more about the market, refine your own message and build your network meeting other attendees. That's attendprecharge.com to learn more. And that is the day ahead of the Caribbean Renewable Energy Forum, otherwise known as CREF. Caribbean Renewable Energy Forum is the place to network with those who are also doing business in the Caribbean. Attendees of Precharge get a discount to CREF. And if you sign up for Precharge before Sunday, you get a 10% discount using the code PRECHARGE10. That's PRECHARGE10. All right, back to the show. First and foremost, how are you typically invited into these communities? Our work in Puerto Rico, you know, and, and I'm, I'm speaking from this from two different sides, from disaster response and from community development. Disaster response, uh, you know, we, we arrived on the island. There was a need. We went to the um, to the wash cluster to the uh, operations center. We told them what we could do. They gave us a list of non-process. So there's two types of water systems, or there's three probably in, in Puerto Rico. There's PRASA, which is a Puerto Rico and aqueduct and sewer authority. And that's the mass of people served by that. That's like your public water utility. Then there's non-PRASA. Non-PRASA is regulated by the, the, by the government, but it's Communities that have their own well, their own treatment, their own tank, they're off the grid, so to speak, and they've got their own and they sustain it themselves. And then there's private wells. So we were asked to go look at these non-process communities that, you know, we're going to be without by whom? the local authorities there on the island. You know, you have the uh, Puerto Rican, you got the EPA. Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of curious from a development perspective, even thinking as a business development, because as a nonprofit, you still are a business. How do you get involved like how do you get this lead for this opportunity that you're going to where you're going to go spend resources and time that's where i'm my angle is and i'm curious like how do you how do you foster those relationships in a way that you are that water mission is thought about when someone needs to okay well again like fema and epa were the were the reasons we got on the island in the first place so we had all these donations coming in we showed them what we could do but fema and epa gave us the latitude the puerto rican department of health gave us the latitude to go look at these. So that's how we got invited in. Was that something where you reached out to FEMA and EPA and said, hey, we've got a bunch of, we have all these resources, we can really help down there, or they already knew about the work you were doing? Mainly us reaching out to them, Gotcha. you know, getting on the island. We had already been to some of the other islands in the Caribbean at that time. We had responded down in Dominica and some other places. Uh, we had some meetings with them, and then they afforded us the opportunity to go out into these communities. And that's how we got started. So the second question there is around the business model, because- as a nonprofit, either you're raising money to spend money or you're building and probably both, or you're asking for donations and kind of equipment. Can you help me understand the overall business model, both for you all for funding these systems, as well as locally financing this, uh, this project for the community and how you make it a sustainable gift? 
again, everything that we do at Water Mission is based off donations, whether it's corporate partners from the mom and pops, from the from the different groups that raise money, our walks for water, everything is 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 brought in through donations. Uh, and we we, you know. I have a budget and disaster response, and we use that money sort of as seed money, if you will, to get started. If we would say, hey, we want to go in and get some help going down here in a disaster, and we do. And then donations start flowing in. We've got a whole marketing team that pushes a, hey, we're responding in Puerto Rico. Hey, we're responding to uh, Tsunami and, and, and Palu and Sulawesi. And then the donations come in, and then we take those donations, and then we go do our work. Now, Again, Puerto Rico is a little bit of an anomaly, and let me explain why. In disaster response, we go in and we set up Oasis water systems. We get water flowing quickly and abundantly where the need is. Now, down the road, as the disaster subsides and, and they go into rebuild, some of those projects may turn into be community-managed projects. Here's where Puerto Rico was different. The non-process systems... When we typically take in one of our water treatment systems and we take it in, we set up as an oasis, people come in and collect water. Well, we did that in a few places. But what we found is after a week or two, people stopped coming. As we got into those communities, we realized why. What they needed was power. They didn't need access to safe water. They already had safe water. They just couldn't get it out of the ground because they didn't have power. They had deep wells. They had pumps. They had storage tanks. What they didn't have was a working power grid. So our response changed. And this is why this is key, because again, if it hadn't have been for that and those communities having their own, their own need like that, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are today with the solar. They had a needed for alternative energy. So Oasis is a product that you guys offer that is a central uh, water uh, system. Is that right? Okay. So, so yeah, let me, let me, uh, let me clarify that a little bit. When I say Oasis, I mean, Oasis is a generic term. We have a system called a living water treatment system that filters, treats the water with chlorine and it, it provides safe water. It can process up to 10,000 gallons of water a day. That living water treatment system we set that up and we call it an oasis because people will come from around to collect the water. So that's just as a generic term, we call it an oasis type. What would you say is perhaps the the easiest thing that surprised you about the, the job? And then conversely, is there something that just seemed harder than you thought it would be? The easiest thing that I can see is the world water crisis is, is, is such a big thing. We're going to have customers. There's going to be a need for a long time, 2.1 billion people. If all the groups that do what we do got together and we're working 24 hours a day, we're still years and years and years away from solving the world water crisis. We're not talking about something that's going to be solved overnight. So there's going to be a need. So that's the easy part that we've got customers. We know what the need is. We know what we have to do. I think the hardest part is raising awareness to the level that can solve it more rapidly. I mean, when you think about it, you know, and I still think about this, Nico, I, I go to the faucet and I get a glass of water. I don't think about it until I think about it. And, and what I mean is I was sitting at the side of a hand, a hand scoop well in Mozambique just, just a few weeks ago, and I'm sitting there drinking water out of a bottle that I just bought, and it's hot, and we're waiting on some parts to come in so we can finish this well test. And, and, and people are sitting around the well. They're curious about what we're doing and how we're going to help them. And there's a five-gallon bucket of the nastiest water you could ever see. It looked like chocolate milk. It's sitting there, and you know, this is water that came out of the well. And one of the guys that was sitting there, he was helping us out a little bit. One of the uh, community people, he just tipped. I saw I, he tipped the bucket over and he took two big gulps of this water. And I, when I saw him do it, that was the first time I'd saw that in person. And, and as long as I've been here, I hadn't seen anybody do it to that water that bad in person. And I saw it. And then we took the sample of the water back 
to our hotel and we ran a test on it. It was full of fecal coliform. It was nasty. And, you know, in that moment, Nico, in two and the years, it really hit me again, really hard that, that people just don't, they don't get it. We drank water out of the tap, like, and, it, and you know, unless you're, you know, maybe in Detroit or something, we drink water out of the tap that is, is safe to drink. And we don't think about it. It's there. We take it for granted. And most people don't understand that that many people don't have access to drink safe water. And the water that they do have, they got to walk three, four kilometers to get it every day, you know, and, 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 and so getting awareness, getting people to understand that it's, it's not just a, you know, it, it's, it's a problem. It's a huge problem. You've had a, a long career where you've been involved in both being mentored and mentoring others. What are some key lessons or takeaways for you as, uh, as you've been developing your own career and developing that of others? Well, I'd say it goes back to my father, who's no military guy, learn and do things right the first time. Don't cut corners. Uh, I think cutting corners demonstrates uh, apathy to your trade craft or to whatever it is you do. Uh, it, it, it demonstrates an apathy to that. And it also, it ends up costing you more in the long run if you don't do it right the first time. I think number two, whatever you touch, always leave it better than you found it. You know, if you go in to do something for somebody else, make it cleaner, neater, and more functional than when, when it was given to you to, to work with. Learn from others. Somebody somewhere has always has already done it. Uh, they've been there, they've done that, and and they can be an example to you of, of what to do and or how not to do something. Be open minded to others' ideas on your team. You know, you're not always going to be the smartest guy in the room, uh, and, and you know, check your ego at the door. Again, learn from others, uh, share ideas. Pulling those ideas may be the difference in having a successful uh, project, a successful operation, or not. From the military, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Along your career uh, in life, it's going to present you opportunities to be a leader. It's going to present you opportunities to follow. And there's going to be opportunities where you don't want to go that route, but you're not exactly leadership material in that situation. So get out of the way. Is there a particular failure or maybe a dead end in your pathway that really affected or influenced your career or your life? Well, I would tell you that uh, as we spoke of earlier, my, my, my previous career before coming to water mission, I was with that company for 17 years mm -hmm. and, uh, I was afforded many great opportunities with that company. I, I learned from the bottom up. I worked my way up through the ranks, many great mentors, many great teachers. And when I came to the end or when I was coming to the end, cause I had been through the housing downturns, I'd been through times when it was stressful and I thought, man, should I be doing this? Do I want to do something else? Cause I went to college for physical therapy. That's what I went to school for. So I thought about going back into that, but I kept, I kept my head down. I kept pressing on and I kept, and I kept achieving and it was good, but near the end. And I, and I thought of this as I was leaving the company, I said, you know, am I just quitting too soon? Is it getting hard? And I'm, am I leaving? But I, but I realized that it was a pivot point that here I am at water mission. And when I look back at that, everything that I get to do here, is predicated upon the successes and the lessons I learned in my previous careers as a firefighter, the Air Force, and through that through that other career. So it was more of a pivot than a failure. I looked back at one time and said, are, are, you, are you quitting when it's getting tough? And I said, no. I'm, I look back now, no, I wasn't quitting. I was being prepared for something greater and, and be willing to accept that. You know, if something, something changes in your career and, and maybe start a new career, this is a second career or maybe even a third one for me, uh, if you look at it from that perspective. And what I've learned through that is every 
every one of those things, if I hadn't experienced the things I did in the military or at that previous job, I would not be good at what I do here at Water Mission. It all so builds on each other. Yeah, it, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess similarly, is there maybe a, a moment in time you look back on and attribute as a success marker for you or a turning point in your career? I think what it was is more about self-confidence. You know, I was a late bloomer. I didn't, you know, all my friends, you know, well, most of my friends, you know, 18, you know, we graduated high school. They went off to college. I didn't go right away for, for various reasons. I started back when I was 26, started my first career, so to speak, besides the military. I started my first career when I was 33. You know, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence, you know, growing up, you know, I had some low self-esteem and not a lot of self-confidence. And when I started college, I was scared. I was like, man, have I prepared? I, you know, I don't want to fail at this. I'm here. I am 26. I gave up a job and pulled all my money to go to school and pay for it myself. And, you know, what happened, I didn't let the fear paralyze me. I let it motivate me. And when I graduated, I was blessed and fortunate that I kept my head in my studies. I did well. I graduated in the top of my class. And not to say that in a braggadocious sort of way, but only to say that this was transformation from this low self-confidence to graduating in the top of my class. And I looked back and I said, you know, I'm here. I said, all right, I'm not doing this anymore. That was my pivot point, so to speak, to realize that if, if is there something I wanted to do and I was willing to put in the wrench time that I could do it. And I've carried that attitude ever since. I don't let anything roadblock me. If I really want it bad enough, I find out what it's going to take to get it. And I put the wrench time in. Is there anything you might say to fellow entrepreneurs along the journey that are, you know, currently feeling like they're in the doldrums or that valley of despair? Well, I, what I would I'd tell them is just to, to be analytical. Take a look around. What what do you want? What do you want to achieve? And it can't just be money. Mm. That can't be the only motivating factor. So f- f- figure out what you want. Where do you want to go? Set your goals. Work hard to achieve them. Work the long nights. Work the double shifts. Whatever you got to do. Learn from your setbacks. And then when you get knocked on your butt, rub some dirt on it and get your butt back in the game. Mm. Don't, ha- don't have a sense of entitlement. Nobody owes you anything. You owe yourself. You know, get out there, get back in the game. You know, if it was easy, everybody would do it. What has you most excited right now with water mission or maybe just generally when you, as you uh, survey the landscape of clean energy and clean water? Well, what excites me is that, that, that our commitment with, uh, we've got some great partner organizations. We've done over 1,200, like I said. And, and it, right now in Puerto Rico, we've done over 40 solar projects uh, for water and, and, and more to come. And I think our work there has set an example and opened up doors for future work. And it just keeps building on itself. So I'm excited about that. We've got uh, these huge refugee camps, Tanzania, which we're doing solar on those on, on those because those places out in Africa don't have grid power. So you got to do solar, you got to do generators. And we're working on some huge solar stuff there. We're learning, we're investing time and money to grow uh, solar as, as a bigger part of our solutions. And, you know, we've got great strategic partners. Grunfuss is one. And I had to mention Blue Planet Energy. Greg Murphy love and Kyle Walter of Blue Planet Energy. I love those guys. Greg's my brother from another mother. Mm. They've taken so much time to teach me, yeah. you know, and nothing, nothing's too simple for them to take time and, and teach me both those guys. I love them. And then and, and their hearts are, are, are in it. And they're, yeah. they're one of our great partners and, too. And, and I Kyle's can't speak native down there now. He's gone native to Puerto Rico. I know. I know. And you know, I've just, uh, I, I haven't talked with him in the past few weeks, but we're still, we still got some stuff. And, and that, that's another thing I will say about blue planet and other partners as well. Their willingness to come alongside us as an NGO and develop solutions. We, you know, they're working on a solution for us on one of our, bigger projects down there and it's a three-phase power 
and a battery solution, a storage solution that's cost effective. And we approached them about it and said, hey, can you work this? And so they're working with not only our, our uh, uh, project mindset, but with some of our other strategic partners and their equipment to marry these up. And, and it's phenomenal to see that come together. Well, as we turn third base here, heading for home, I always like to dig into how you feed your mind and your soul. I wonder, or besides perhaps the Bible, is there other another book that you recommend or gift the most and why? I'm a fan of different types of reading. I, I like suspense. I like spy on spy, clandestine stuff. But in terms of the South, uh, one of my big favorites, and you know, uh, God rest his soul, he's passed a few years ago, was Pat Conroy. He was a Citadel grad. He's written some excellent books, uh, My Losing Season, The Waters Wide, The Great Santini, uh, Prince of Tides, just a bunch of books. So uh, Beach Music's one of my favorite of his, uh, and I, I often purchase those books and, and gift those. But if you like the South, you like South Carolina, the low country in general, Beaufort, you know, Charleston, that mm. area, you'll feel like you're being seeped in a cup of Charleston when you read his books. I mean, it just, it, it brings it to life. That's so cool. I'll have to, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. I mean, obviously I'm a South Carolina native, so yeah, uh, I love, uh, I, I feel like I am already steeped in it. Don't necessarily <laughs> have a whole lot of room for soaking it up, but I recommend to those who do ask me, what's it like to to be from the South or, or go through the South, which I got a lot when I lived in, uh, in Latin America or in, in California for that matter. Any other books that have shaped or influenced your leadership style? Oh, absolutely. And as you mentioned, the Bible, the Bible, Bible's my go-to. And, and for me, because it's all about servant leadership, uh, there's no better book to teach you how to, Jesus was the prime example for he came here to, to, to serve, not to be served. And I think if, I think if more people would go through their life in a servant leadership type way, the world would be a better place, but also a book that's very similar to that. Uh, well, I'll say similar to the Bible, but it talks about the, there's a need for both the heart and the fist is by Eric Greitens, a great book. He was a, uh, special forces, uh, or a seal, the need for a strong, for strengths, but also having heart and compassion for others in need. A uh, great book there. And then also there's a book called Freed to Lead. Now, most people wouldn't know this. This is it's a group called F3 uh, Fitness Fellowship and Faith. It's a men's group that has boot camp type workout. But the guys that found, founded it uh, out of North Carolina. Um, a lot of, my, a lot of my good friends are in F3. <laughs> yeah. So the book's called F3 uh, and the Unshackling of the Modern Day Warrior. It, it's a great book for men on, on, on leadership and how not to become the sad clown, which I'd recommend for any entrepreneur. You don't want to be the sad clown. Well, what's on your nightstand? Is there anything you're reading now? Yes. Uh, another one of those books uh, uh, by Dave Goggins called Can't Hurt Me. Man, I'm seeing the F3 come out hard here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this guy, Dave Goggins, phenomenal. I think he's, he's unreal. the only, only man in history to go through uh, SEAL training, uh, Ranger School, and Air Force Tactical uh, School. So three special forces schools. And I, I, he's completed over 60 ultra marathons and endurance events and, and just phenomenal. So that's my current read. I'm, I'm just getting into it. Where can people find out more about you and about Water Mission, Mark? Well, I'm on Twitter, F3 Hotspot at NeoSpy40. Mark Baker's my LinkedIn. If they want to reach out to me directly, got any questions or, you know, would like an opportunity maybe to work alongside Water Mission, mbaker at watermission.org. Absolutely. And then lastly, uh, uh, watermission.org is our website. And I would encourage anybody, if they want to know more, not just about what we do, but, but about the world water crisis, uh, to go on to watermission.org. There's a, a lot of information there. And also, you know, about getting involved, volunteering, 
general information and, and uh, to be informed about what we do and where we do. Well, you have uh, you have my formal endorsement, and I'm definitely looking for ways that I can collaborate with Water Mission. I would encourage all of our uh, solar warriors out there, Suncast Tribe, to think uh, and do likewise. Uh, what a phenomenal organization uh, to support. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to have had you on the show. Mark, let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, I would say, I don't know if anybody else is, I would say no one else is tracking it, but I think given where we're at with the technology today, I, I say that the next breakthrough should be longer lasting, lower priced DC storage. Because I think without that, uh, getting to household solar uh, as a primary source for energy is, is not going to happen unless they do that. I mean, if we can find a way to make that better, faster, cheaper, larger, I think that that would be a huge breakthrough in the market. Mark Baker is director of disaster response for Water Mission, and it has been an honor and privilege to have you here on Suncast today, sir. Thank you, Nico. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap, Solar Warrior. And if you've loved what you've heard here today, would you please take the time to show Mark and I some love by sharing this podcast with your colleagues and your network. A shout out on Twitter and LinkedIn are always hugely appreciated. Your recommendation is perhaps the highest compliment that we could receive. To learn more about today's guest or past episodes, just click on the listen link at mysuncast.com, which will take you to the episodes page and you'll get the show notes, social media and website links and fantastic book recommendations and other back catalog of interviews chock full of goodies just like this one. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter and also rate and review this podcast in your podcast player so that others can find and enjoy Suncast just like you have today. I'm so happy that you chose to be here again this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.